Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to have you here. My name's Matt. I'm pastor here of the church. And I'd like to begin just by saying a big thank you to everyone who was a part of uh, Easter weekend. Uh, thank you for everyone who helped make the um, Easter online service go so well, those who tuned in, those who shared uh, the link. In fact, I want to just pray for us uh, that the hope of Easter would, in fact, bring comfort to our community in this time of, of crisis. So let me, let me pray for us now. Uh, Lord, we know that this is a difficult time. Lord, it runs the full spectrum from just uh, an inconvenience for us, having to be in our home all the time, to those of us who've lost jobs, those of us who are dealing with health uh, issues. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the season of Easter. I thank you for the reminder of the hope that you bring in all circumstances. And Lord, I pray for everyone who, who heard the message, maybe for the first time, maybe some who are tuning in again today, and for all of us, Lord, I pray, God, that we would uh, better understand how much you love us uh, because of Jesus, what you did. And I, I pray right now as we turn our attention back to the word of God that this very day you would speak to us. You would help us to better understand how you work in our lives and in the world so that we might have greater comfort and greater peace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, as you might have been able to tell, we are in a new sermon series. Uh, this sermon series is going to be for five weeks. It's in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is a book that we don't uh, go to that, that often in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, uh, grab it, go to the index and find uh, Habakkuk. It's just, just near the New Testament. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put the, the words up on the screen. Uh, the title of this sermon series, though, is called When Life Seems Wrong. And um, to begin, I thought I'd tell you a story of a situation that went horribly wrong. Uh, this was a story I heard this week told by an older cop about uh, one of his first few years on the force. And it goes like this. So the cop and his partner, uh, they responded to a, a call to a residential neighborhood. Uh, all, the, all the information they had was that there was an animal disturbance. So they got the address, knocked on the door. Uh, the husband answered the door and, and said, look, I'm sorry to bother you, but... My wife and I, we were having a kind of a romantic dinner, and we heard this scratching from up in the attic. Now, the, the cop's partner said, uh, look, I'm sorry, sir, but, you know, that's not really our department. We have animal control. But this cop was feeling very gallant, and so he, he walked in the door and said, don't worry, sir, we'll take care of this. So he charged upstairs, went to the attic, pulled down the trap door, unfolded the ladder, grabbed his big flashlight, and popped his head up into the attic, and right away turned around, and there was a squirrel looking him dead in the eyes, like six inches away. So it scared him right out of his wits. He fell back on the ladder, dropped the flashlight, which fell down and hit the homeowner right on the bridge of the nose. Blood started going everywhere. He landed on his partner. So they're all kind of in a heap on the floor and the squirrel runs down the, the ladder and all the way downstairs and they hear screaming from the wife who's downstairs in the living room. They walk into the living room. The squirrel has gone under the couch. There's this big roaring fire, beautiful setup. They were having this, this nice dinner, candlelit dinner. And they have to decide what to do. So they say, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to pick up the couch, move it towards the corner, and then try to flush him out. When he runs for the door, we'll grab him. So they do that. They move the couch to the corner. But as they try to flush out the squirrel, instead of the squirrel running towards the door, he runs straight towards the fire. And in fact, he runs into the fire. The squirrel catches on fire and begins to run around the room under the couch. Now the couch is on fire. So the, the cops, they right away, they flip over the, the couch and they take the throw pillows and they start to, to beat out the flames. And while they're doing that, of course, they're beating this now dead charred squirrel all over the place. 
Within a minute, the fire is out. Uh, The room is filled with smoke. There's soot everywhere. There's dead squirrel everywhere. The homeowner is still bleeding. And he looks at them and he says, I I can't pinpoint exactly what you did wrong, but but everything is a mess. Now, I share that story uh, because I hope uh, you're laughing. If you were here, I'd hope that you would be laughing. And it highlights the fact that uh, a lot of the time, uh, wrongness in life is hilarious. I mean, we love stories like that for the most part, especially when they don't happen to us, right? We love to, we love to see misfortune. We, we find it hilarious when things like that happen to other people. But while some wrongness is hilarious, um, there's another kind of wrongness uh, that, that doesn't entertain us. It grieves us. Uh, it, it, it breaks our heart when we see the, the things that are wrong in our lives, in the world, and it's the second kind of wrongness that we're going to be talking about in our sermon series because uh, this sense of, of wrongness, of, of seeing things that aren't right, of mourning the way that things are, uh, that was very much uh, in, in Habakkuk's mind and, and heart as he wrote his book. Um, so let's begin by just thinking a little bit about who is Habakkuk. Uh, we don't know a lot about him. Uh, he was an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he lived in Judah, which is the people of God at the time, uh, around the beginning of uh, the 500 BCs. Uh, we, we know he's a prophet because in the very first verse, uh, today we're going to be in verses 1 to 11, but we see this, uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Uh, so the way things worked for prophets, they would receive oracles or visions, and usually it would be a one-way street. So they would receive from God, they would communicate that to the people, but with Habakkuk, it's a little bit different. Because Habakkuk, he, he is aware of the wrong that's going on around him, and he's frustrated. Uh, so frustrated that he wants to have a dialogue with God. Uh, kind of like Job, he brings questions to God. He, he asks him essentially, Lord, what are you doing with all the wrong that is going on in our world? And so that's what we're going to look at uh, throughout the entire book. But for today, we're going to look at their first interaction between Habakkuk and God. And um, so we're going to see Habakkuk's question, God's answer, and then a few lessons that we're going to apply to our lives uh, today. So we're going to begin with Habakkuk's questions. And uh, this is from verses 2 to 4. And it reads as follows. Uh, Habakkuk's complaint. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. You can see right away that Habakkuk, he's pretty worked up. He's very passionate, very, very descriptive. There's actually a few different questions that he has for God, but they all amount to the same thing. God, evil is running rampant. I've been praying to you about this for a long time. God, when are you going to do something? When are you, when are you going to do something to address all the evil that's going on in the world? And specifically, though, what he's talking about is not just the world at large, but uh, the, the people of God is his focus. When it says there in verse 4, he talks about the wicked, really he's speaking about Judah itself. And that's why Habakkuk is so grieved, because he's looking at God's people, those who know the laws of God, those who are are supposed to have faith and be following him, and he sees that sin has not just tainted their community, but it is defining who they are. He describes uh, things like violence and iniquity, destruction, strife and contention. 
you get the sense that the very moral fabric of society is being completely torn apart. No one cares about the things of God. No one cares about each other. They're all out for themselves. Now, historically, uh, we know a little bit about how this came to be. Uh, Judah's king at the time was Jehoiakim. And we know from other parts of the Bible in 2 Kings 23 that um, he was an evil king. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord and that he filled the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood. And so when Habakkuk says that the law is paralyzed, he really means that the law is paralyzed. Those who were in charge, those who were in leadership, who should be enforcing the laws, uh, they were the ones who were corrupt. And we know what happens when there's corruption at the top, it begins to seep into the rest of the community. But Habakkuk's focus here is not really on how things came to be. His focus really is on God. What are you going to do about it? You see his his questions. Verse 2, how long shall I cry for help? Verse 3, why do you idly look at wrong? The sense we get here from Habakkuk is that he's not just questioning God. There's a tone of judgment. Uh, A a tone of that he's taking the moral high ground and accusing God of, of apathy, that he doesn't care anymore. Uh, If you're a parent with young children, you you probably know this tone. Because when kids cry out injustice, they they are indignant that their parents will not come and deal with things right away. For for example, imagine a mother uh, in the house, you know, making lunch or something, and two of her daughters out in the backyard, and there's some wrong that happens. What will happen every time is that uh, the one who's been wronged will cry out, will cry out, Mom! Mom! Katie's bugging me! Katie was pushing me on the swing, but she wasn't pushing me in a nice way. She pushed me in a mean way, so I fell on my face. And if there's any hesitation, any pause, where the mother does not immediately run to her aid, then the crying continues. Mom, don't you care? And the tone is one of saying, Mom, how, do you not see the injustice, the evil that's being done in your home? How can you not respond? That's the sense we get from Habakkuk. That he's not just complaining to God, there's a, sense of, there's a sense of judgment, which is a very precarious position for a prophet to be in. But we should, we should acknowledge the fact that, that at least Habakkuk is, is really grieved uh, for the right reasons. See, he's really grieved about sin. A couple of questions that I think come to mind that we should ask ourselves before moving on to God's response uh, are these. Number one, are, are we grieved by sin like Habakkuk is here. I mean, there's lots of times where we're bothered by things, where we sense wrongness in our world and in our lives, but, but very often I think it's because things just aren't going our way. That we wish that, you know, certain opportunity would work out, that we wish that a certain day would, would happen in a certain way, and it doesn't, and we're frustrated and we're upset. We should be wondering Um, Do we really respond not just to the sin that's done against us, but just to the presence of sin in our community in the same way that Habakkuk does here? The second question I think we should be asking ourselves is, are we praying like Habakkuk does? I mean, we would, we should, he would have real reason uh, to not want to pray anymore, to be cynical, right? I mean, he's been praying for years. He still sees a lot of evil running rampant in his community. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. You would think that he would get to the point of saying, fine, if God doesn't care, I don't care either. And yet that's not what we see. We see that Habakkuk, he has questions for God, yes, but he doesn't doubt that God is there. And and when push comes to shove, he is still praying. He's still hoping that God will be the one to do something about it. This should be encouraging for those of us that are going through a season where it seems like God is silent. 
what we're going to see here in God's response, indeed through the whole book of Habakkuk, is that in those times where our faith is tested, where we're waiting for a response, it may seem like God is, is doing nothing, but in fact, God is at work. And we see this very clearly in God's, in God's response. God says to Habakkuk, look, you think I'm not doing anything, but actually, I've been doing things that, that you can't even see or imagine. So let's look at God's answer. Um, so the essence of Habakkuk's question was, God, God, when are you going to do something about everything that's going on? Uh, the essence of God's response is, I am. I have been doing something. And we see this uh, at first here in verses 5 and 6. So God answers, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold... I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, God's saying two things right away. At first, he's saying, look, you don't think I have a plan? I already have a plan in motion. But to understand his plan, we need to understand who the Chaldeans are. Uh, the Chaldeans, uh, another word for them, uh, name is the Babylonians. The Babylonians uh, were a, a giant empire at the time, one of the largest ancient empires, certainly the strongest at the time. Uh, they, they were a battle-hardened nation. They had spent most of the last hundred years battling with the Assyrians. So they were a culture of war and violence. And what we see here is that God is saying his plan to deal with the evil in his people is to bring the Babylonian army into Judah to conquer his people, to rebuke them for their sin. And just to make sure that Habakkuk understands what this means and so that we understand, God goes on to describe the Babylonian army and what they're like, their ferocity. So this is, these are the last verses of our, of our passage, beginning in verse 7. He says, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So you can see the, the combination there of aggression, of oppression, of violence, and pride. You can see also the imagery that, that he includes there of the animals describing their, their soldiers in battle. It says that they're, they're fast, swift like eagles or leopards, brutal like wolves, merciless in that they gather captives like sand. The truth is that Habakkuk, I mean, he would have already known who the Babylonians are. That was part of their strategy. They wanted everyone around them to be in fear. So that's not necessarily new information, but the surprising thing here, of course, is that God would, would choose to use this, this evil horde to come and, and discipline his own people. Habakkuk gives the impression that this is unexpected, but that's not entirely the case. I mean, as he's praying, it, it, he gives the impression that God hasn't been doing anything or saying anything about the evil amongst his people or what he might do about it, but in fact, if we look at the other prophets, we see that God has been speaking to his people. In fact, he, he said a lot to them about their evil. Let's look at Jeremiah 25, uh, starting in verse 2, where Jeremiah says this to, to the same people, to Judah. He says, For 23 years the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. 
You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, turn from his evil way and evil deeds. So God had, in fact, been calling his people to repentance. He'd been calling them to depart from their evil ways and to pursue what is good and righteous and follow his laws. In fact, more than calling him to do that, he's been warning them about what would happen if they don't. Very specifically, in fact. Uh, Look again at Jeremiah 25, this time uh, verse 8. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. So this plan that God has is, is not really a new plan. What he's telling Habakkuk is a plan that he's had in motion uh, for a long time. And you see here is is God is planning on on bringing the answer to evil, but also while he's getting that ready, he's being very patient. He's been calling to his people for for decades saying, you have to turn from your sin because the consequence is coming. So that's the first interaction between Habakkuk and God. We see uh, Habakkuk's question. We see God's response. We see the plan that God has been putting into action and is almost about to take place. So now the question for us is what lessons can we glean? Especially in light of the fact that this is a very different culture, very different time. I mean, we're not under the threat of a Babylonian empire. And yet there are some specific enduring truths here that will bring us hope and comfort that apply directly to us today. So we're going to look at two of them. Here's here's lesson number one which is simply this, God's patience with sin does eventually run out. We see that very clearly, especially in light of uh, some of the historical context. We see that God has been calling his people to repent for decades. Clearly, he is a patient God. Clearly, he wants very much for his people to turn away from sin and to escape any consequence. But we also see that his patience uh, isn't unlimited. The fact that the Babylonians are coming makes very, very clear that there is a day, a day of judgment, a day of discipline. This is actually a good thing. I mean, we we want for God to be patient, but for God to be, for his patience to be unlimited, it would mean then that the accusations that Habakkuk is bringing against him are are kind of true. That he is never going to do anything about evil, that he doesn't really care about justice. But the fact that the Babylonians are coming is a vindication of God's character that he is just and he is good and there is always an answer for evil in the universe that he made. But also clearly it's a warning. It's a warning for those that always think that they have time to deal with their sin. See, the Bible, the Bible never takes sin lightly. In fact, what's being described here, this consequence of sin, we see it throughout the Bible. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks, speaks about hell, speaks about the eternal consequence for sin. He uses language like the destruction of our souls and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. None of this is scare tactics. This is kindness. This is love. We see the same thing actually in our world today when it comes to the COVID crisis. Uh, If you think about the way that information is being communicated to us, uh, our medical authorities are making very clear, look, there is a danger when it comes to COVID-19 especially for those uh, who are more vulnerable. But for all of us, there, there is real danger. There is a death toll that's coming because of this disease. And so because of that, there's a call to action. We know it. Wash our hands, keep away from each other, try to flatten the curve, 
That's not scare tactics. That's, they're doing that because uh, they, want to, um, they want to preserve life and they want to prevent our suffering. That's their intention. That's the same intention in the Bible. That's, in fact, the message of the gospel, the Easter message, that humanity is in peril, that because of our sin nature, we, we need to turn or else there will be consequences that come. And the hope that we have is in Jesus. He's the one who took all of the penalties, the consequence of death upon himself. That's what we talked about last week with the Easter story, that Jesus died a very specific death. It was a painful death, a, a death of suffering. And he did it because because those are the consequences of sin. And as he took all of that upon himself, he brought hope to us. He did it to preserve life and to prevent our suffering. And so the call to action for us is the same call that that we see all through the Old Testament. In fact, the, the whole Bible that God says to the world, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin to avoid the consequences that are to come. The thing of it is, though, that this gracious offer is not one that endures forever. God's patience, God's forgiveness, there is a time when his justice takes over. That's what we're seeing here with with what God is doing with his people. He is disciplining them in their sin and he's making very clear for us that there will be a day for those people in Judah, those who thought they had the next day or tomorrow to make themselves right with God, to confess their sin. And yet they look on the horizon, they see the Babylonian hordes coming and it's too late. We can have that same attitude. Many of us who, who think to ourselves, there's a part of us that says, I know I need to make things right. I know I need to confess. I really do want to have faith in Jesus. But we keep putting it off to the next day and the next. And what we see here is the warning that, that death is coming sooner than we might imagine. In fact, death is always unexpected. And if we think we can push it off for forever, we're not understanding what the Bible says. That God is patient, God is gracious, God is forgiving, and yet there is a limit to that patience. There is a day of judgment for each one of us. And so really the question in light of this first point is, why are we waiting? If we're a person of faith already, and yet we know we have sin in our lives that we need to repent of, why are we waiting? Why are we leaning on the the patience and grace of God? Why are we allowing ourselves to be to be tugged further and further into sin, why not repent and come back and have genuine peace and hope in our lives? And if we've never done that, why not today? Why not today be the day that we can have the certainty of hope in this life and in the life to come because we confess our sin and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? God is patient with sin, but that patience does eventually run out. That's our first lesson. The second lesson is this. God uses everything, even destructive forces, to accomplish his good purposes. Now, this is kind of a bigger picture truth, but one that will really help us in light of what's going on today. See, the reason that God says Habakkuk will be astounded by the plan is is because of the sheer magnitude of this plan, right? Think of what's being described. God is saying that this entire army, this entire empire, the Babylonians, this, this amazingly destructive force, those who scoff at kings, laugh at rulers, those who have their own might as their God, they are essentially like a tool in the hands of God, like hedge trimmers that God is using to prune his own people. Proverbs 21.1 says this about God's sovereignty. 
It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. But here we see something even more amazing. Not just that God can direct a king's will this way or that way, but that he can even use a king's evil intentions for his good. Now, you might have a question there about, about whether that is a morally justifiable thing for God to do. Whether God should use what is evil for good. And that's a good question. In fact, uh, the next section of the text, Habakkuk is going to ask that very question. So we're going to table that until next week. We're going to deal with that. But for now, what we're going to do is look at the implications of this amazing truth for our lives. That even in the wrongs of life, God is at work. God is at work for our good. And to, to help us understand this, to kind of capture this truth, uh, I want to tell a story of a woman named Corey. Uh, her name is Corey Selchert. She's from uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And uh, she tells a story of a time in her life when things seemed to be going wrong all around her. For one thing, she was diagnosed with an autoimmune um, a deficiency, a disease that, that meant that she had to stop working. I don't just mean she couldn't, you know, lost her position. She, she had to stop her career as a bereavement counselor and hospice nurse. And she describes that time as a very, very difficult time. Uh, she says, I felt as if my identity had been lost along with my job. Because now she, the thing that she loved to do each and every day, she, she couldn't do it anymore. But she soon found a new calling. See, uh, her and her husband, Mark, had done some foster care work over the years, usually with babies. And uh, she felt this calling on her heart to do more foster care work, but not just with babies, also with teens. And so she contacted a social worker and said, you know, if you, if you come across a teen who is medically fragile, she said, I, I think I'd like to help care for that teen, whoever it is. And before long, uh, they found someone, or, or they found someone who really needed care and uh, he was 13 years old. Uh, his name was Samuel, and uh, he had a very specific uh, condition. It was called leukodystrophy, which is a degenerative terminal brain disease. So Samuel, all through his uh, childhood, was very active, and then all of a sudden, he experienced these, these massive seizures. And, and overnight, he was bedridden. He was nonverbal, nonresponsive. And Corey says when they brought Samuel into their home, it, it was very difficult at first uh, because she was used to babies. And baby, babies are cuddly and snuggly and they kind of give a lot of love just by being there. But this was a big 13-year-old boy uh, who, who, didn't, who couldn't talk, didn't respond. Uh, there was a lot of care that was needed for him, a lot of medical uh, issues, a lot of trips to the hospital. She felt like she was giving a lot and not getting much back. She says at that time, I chose to act in a loving way, fully expecting that God would bring those feelings along that she would come to really care for Samuel, and she did. Uh, before long, they had uh, nicknames for Samuel. They called him Teddy Bear or T-Bear. She began to notice when he would give slight smiles or slight moans when she would, she would rub him. Uh, they cared for him for almost two years. And when he was 15 years old, her and her husband Mark, they decided they wanted to adopt him. They, they wanted him to be part of their family. But as they went through the process, uh, Samuel's uh, condition got worse. And it became clear that he was not probably going to make it until the court date, the final court date, uh, the adoption proceedings. Now, you would think at that time that they would simply say, well, I guess it's just not meant to be. Uh, I mean, he's here in our home. He's with us. We're not even really sure if you can understand what's, what's going on. Why, why push the adoption issue? But they did push it. 
They wanted, for Samuel, in whatever way he was able to understand, they wanted him to know that he was, he was wanted, that he was loved, that he was part of their family. So they, they appealed to the judge. They said, can we move up the date so that we can, we can adopt him before he's gone? And the judge, he was so moved, he didn't just move up the date, he moved the entire court proceeding to their home. He, all the court clerks, everyone piled into their home. In fact, it was a day of celebration. Everyone that they knew came. Even the fire department came. You can see a picture there up on the screen. They made Samuel an honorary uh, a member of the fire department because they had got to know him so well. They came a lot for medical emergencies. Samuel died a week after this picture was taken. He was part of their family. And here's what Corey said about this time with Samuel. She said, it is a beautiful thing to love deeply. She says, we were privileged to have invested for 22 months and to hold Samuel's hand as he slipped away from us and flew towards heaven. She says, sometimes I tell people I may be crying, but I'm not in despair, far from it. She says, this isn't fun, but it is deeply satisfying. I'm given the privilege of caring for these children until they go home to Jesus, and I'm being carried by him while I do. See, it would have been very, very tempting for Corey to look at all of the wrongs in her life, her own health issues, Samuel's health issues, and to allow those wrongs to eclipse everything else that was going on. It would be very understandable for someone in her position to be, to be praying and saying, only God, how could you let this happen? How could you let this happen to this poor boy and to me and this whole situation? It's so difficult. God, when are you going to do something good in our lives? But if she had had that point of view, she would have missed all the good that God was already doing. She would have missed the fact that God was already at work in her life, in Samuel's life, and in the lives of everyone who was touched by their, by their relationship. See, that's, that's the truth that we're seeing in Habakkuk. That even in, in the wrongs of life, God is at work. And, and we can be honest. We can be honest and say there are a lot of wrongs in our lives. There are a lot of situations. It's different for each one of us. Maybe difficult marriage, difficult job, difficult relationships, debilitating illnesses. So many things that we could point to and say, God, look, if you really loved me, you would just get rid of this negative, destructive thing in my life. That's, that's the only way that I can sense that you really care for me is to get rid of it. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes that's his answer. But sometimes his answer is different. Sometimes his answer is, is what he said to Habakkuk. Sometimes he says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. See, there are a lot of wrongs in our lives. But the truth that we see over and over again in Scripture is that in those times of silence, in those times when it seems that God is not at work, he is. He is at work in ways that we can't even fathom. And perhaps, perhaps the best thing that we could do in light of this truth is instead of, instead of praying, God, would you just get rid of this thing? Would, would you move in the way that I think is best? Maybe we should pray, Lord, would you give me eyes to see what you're already doing? Would you help me to see the ways in which you are already at work for my good? Because when we pray like that, our, our eyes would be opened to a whole host of opportunities for us to confess sin, 
for us to show compassion, for us to show love, for us to show our faith, our faith in the God who has already saved us. Look, the truths of Habakkuk are ancient truths, but they are just as applicable for us today. For there are many wrongs, but praise God, he is at work in the midst of all of them. Not not just to, to remove them from our lives, but to actually redeem them. For us to, in the midst of the difficulties and trials, for us to find the strength of God and to see the hand of God at work. My hope for us, especially in this difficult time, is that we would be drawn to the Lord in faith and that we would continue in hope and that we would look for the good that God is doing, being constant in prayer, being being vigilant in praying for those around us and rejoicing because of what God has already done and is doing in our midst. Let me pray for us to that end. Lord God, we are thankful Thankful to be reminded, Lord, that you are always at work. That God, even in the, even in the midst of, of negative, destructive forces that, that we, can, we can't see around, Lord, we can't see past, God, we, I thank you for the reminder that you are even at work in those things. And Lord, I pray for faith for us. I pray for a spiritual sight that we might see the ways in which you are at work and that we might still have faith in you, we might still have joy And Lord, that we might draw near to you. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are just at the beginnings of of a walk of faith, God, may you help us to, to truly turn to you in repentance, to believe the gospel, to be freed from the the consequences of sin, to not wait. But also, Lord, I pray for those of us who've been walking with you for a while and are beginning to doubt that you still know we're even here and care about what's going on, I pray, Lord, that you would bring us a greater comfort and peace knowing that you are with us. I do pray, Lord, for, for an answer to the wrongs in our life. But I pray most of all, Lord, that we would see that, that even in the midst of those wrongs, Lord, you are doing good work. You have you've brought hope to us because of the cross. Lord, a moment of, of great wrong, of great injustice and sin as Jesus, you were nailed to the cross and yet through that, God, you are bringing the greatest good for all of humanity. God, may we have hope in that. May we have faith in that. By your grace, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond uh, to this word from God in the way that we do each week. Uh, We do this in a few different ways. First of all, we'd love to pray with you and for you. Uh, If you are on our live page, you can see an opportunity there to submit prayer requests. We'd love to contact you and pray with you. Uh, Also, we have an opportunity for giving. And that's because our giving, for those who are are part of the church, this is part of how we acknowledge that everything we have is from God. So if you are part of the church, thank you for your your consistent giving and and supporting the ministry. If you're a guest tuning in, please feel no obligation to give. We're just uh, really glad that you're here with us. Uh, The final way that we're going to respond is through song. We're going to sing a final song of worship, rejoicing in who God is. And so uh, I pray that you would you would enjoy the the comfort of God this week and that you would spend some time right now in worship uh, because of who God is. Let's do that together.